Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. people yes it's keeping it secure episode eight we are back in the building happy to be back with you all gonna keep things nice and secure i'm joined as usual with my co-host who i'm told has a new nickname he doesn't even know i know this right um mr 300 percent mr 300 percent yeah aka bruce <laughs> mr 300 percent how are you doing I'm good. Thanks, Bruce, man. Uh, I'm good, man. You know what? It's been such a long time. I feel like I haven't caught up with you for a while. Um, uh, you no. know what? I was going to actually talk to you about that, but uh, I'm surprised <laughs> that you've... Uh... <laughs> you... <laughs> I, have, I have friends everywhere. I have friends everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a story for another day, mate. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to have you here as a co-host yet again. Um, we have a special guest today. All our guests are special, but this one is is incredibly special because this is like you know footballers and and, and musicians. You know how they get discovered, you know, by uh, you know some kind of big A and R or something like that. Well, this guest that came to us today was discovered by our very own security A and R, a deal. Devots a deal. Devots a deal came across a, a, a wonderfully written article by our guest today, uh, who is a security engineer for Monzo. And that piqued our attention. Uh, We've been discussing the article and reached out and we're so happy to have Orn here, who's a security engineer from Monzo. So welcome, Orn. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's nice to be on. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So just to give some context, Monzo are a modern age bank, right? So uh, I'm not sure in the rest of the world if you have Monzo. I think they're only just breaking into US markets. Um, but over here in Europe, we've had Monzo for a little while. Uh, they're like an app first kind of bank. So you download a mobile app um, and you literally your, your banking journey starts from there. It's a real joy to use. I personally have a Monzo account. So does my wife. We're even thinking about getting a joint monzo account as well uh and they're infamous for their uh coral colored cards i think coral is the name of the color but it's a very bright orangey looking kind of card uh very good looking um so yeah that's who monzo are uh so Orn, who's joining us today is a security engineer for monzo so i thought i'd just set that context so uh you know let's let's just get straight into it so like like i say I, we found out about you because you you wrote that article uh, on monzo's site it's really great actually that they allow you to kind of express the, yourself and the work that you're doing uh, on their official blog and it really helps provide uh, a, a bigger profile for yourself which is amazing um so in terms of uh that article there it, it's you know for, just to give a bit of background uh, it was around uh kind of how you're doing workload identity using digital signatures is that kind of a good summary of where it's going yeah i guess so um the blog post is kind of a, an overview of two or three different topics that have just been combined together into one post um so we use a pki 
in Monzo for like identity and PKIs rely on digital signatures to um, forward and delegate trust in a way that's verifiable. Um, and so uh, I kind of just went over that and kind of explained how all of this relies on uh, keeping those secrets that it depends on safe. And the trade-offs that are involved in this are actually quite interesting because um, like uh, like in everything in security, we everything is a trade-off and you have to kind of be aware of what's important and what's not and how um, people will interact with uh, uh, things that you design and things that you create. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a combination of a couple of different topics, but yeah, that, that yeah. is what it's about. I found that interesting as well. And yeah, I mean, before I start off with questions here, I just want to say I'm a big fan of the whole kind of how Monzo's always open about their technology and how they do things. Honestly, it's, it really gives a, a good insight as to how technology should be built or, or even opinionated view of the technology that's built, built for a bank. Um, and really, I, I hope that other banks are feeling inspired to do the same and sharing that knowledge with the industry. You know, hats off. Um, Coming back to this uh, whole security piece, right? I, I found that interesting as well. I know that there's been other posts about uh, using Vault uh, um, that's been published uh, from Monzo. But this one, uh, as Rob said, you know, what struck, uh, struck us is, is, is around this whole identity piece. And you kind of mentioned about how security is, in essence, uh, a form of validating uh, that identity. What I, I, th- I think it's interesting is that, first of all, the fact that you've... Um, took that ownership of, of writing this up. Um, and I would assume uh, a lot of that is also behind your understanding of that design process and that and the rationale behind that. So how did yourself and Monzo uh, have come to the point where you've, you realize that having an identity is, is an important step? Uh, and kind of, it sounds like you, you, you want to move away from secrets and the only secrets you're protecting is essentially those secrets that will be validating those identities. Is that right? So uh, I guess um, my point with that part is kind of that in all situations, whenever we have secrets in cryptographic designs, um, everything relies on the secret. So if we're not encrypting anything and we're just logging into a website, then that secret is your password. And since you have exclusive ownership or knowledge of that password, then you're able to prove something to the server. You're able to prove that, hey, I am uh, on Uma and you know I'm, uh, I'm the person who owns this account and you should give me access to this account. Um, like, so when you move over to a crypto system, um, if you just have something like, normal symmetric encryption where there's only a single key it's basically the same thing except um you're not there's not two people that share some way to verify that it's just one um uh, piece of information that has been protected in such a way that only that secret is able to access it and this kind of the principle in pretty much all crypto systems it's actually called kirchhoff's principle where the security of a crypto system should rely um, solely on the secrecy of the key material and nothing else. Um, so in a PKI, the way that this is applied is that um, uh, 
you don't use the secret to grant exclusive like uh, uh, knowledge of some data that's protected by that secret. It's actually you are protecting. Um, you're protecting the exclusive ability to prove an identity. Um, so if you have the if you create a signature, for example, with a private key that only you know, then uh, anyone else is able to verify that you made um, that statement and you're able to forward this trust down the chain to other people so other people can take that trust and forward it down. Um, uh, in in terms of our PKI, I don't think that whenever you have something like TLS and um, a public key, like infrastructure, you would need um, a very similar structure. In any case, um, just having passwords or something wouldn't um, wouldn't really be suitable for uh, like securing TLS connections, for example. I think you kind of delved into kind of one of the areas I want to go into. Um, uh, which is around some of the challenges of PKI. So in terms of using PKI as the the kind of the, the main vehicle for kind of uh, proving identity, what would you say the biggest challenges are? I think you also mentioned earlier on about some of the trade-offs, right? So in terms of these challenges, when you kind of uh, tackle these challenges, what trade-offs are we making as well? So that's kind of a double question, I guess. I guess the obvious challenge is like, how do you, since it all relies on uh, keeping your private key secure, how do you both make the private key secure, like so that no one else but the people who need it can access it, but also really convenient. Like if there's a service that is serving tens of thousands of requests like uh, in a very sh short amount of time, it needs to have very frequent access to that key. Um, and so uh, you kind of had to find a good balance between um, you have to find a good balance between being able to access it and keeping it safe. Um, in PKI, you often solve this problem using uh, a chain of trust. So when you connect to ordinary websites on the internet as well, it uses um, a very similar infrastructure, which is that there's the root anchor of trust, which is the root certificate. And this is kept like guarded, like ultra secure, completely offline you're not able to access it um, very easily at all. Like th there's very, very high levels of assurance around this secret. But then this secret can delegate part of its trust to a, a, a different secret that's still quite secure, but stored online, has a shorter expiry, um, uh, can only has a maybe a, a more limited set of powers and... Uh, even further, when you get to uh, a leaf certificate that really only has the power to affect a certain specific endpoint or a specific service, it expires extremely quickly, like within a few days. Um, and it can be stored within services in memory. So not written to disk, but... Um, uh, so you kind of have this, like... Um, uh, this like gradient of as assurances get smaller the scope of the secret so the blast radius of it it being leaked gets smaller and the convenience also rises um, so it's all kind of like a, a, a picking the right balance are there any times where you think the pki is not a good fit 
for um for workloads um uh, pki kind of becomes the obvious solution once you scale past a certain point so uh, i think ssh keys uh, kind of had a similar problem in the past um where like most people just use passwords to access ssh servers and then everyone was like hey don't use passwords they can be leaked etc and then everyone started recommending people use ssh keys so you literally have a list of valid like allow listed ssh keys on a server and maybe like 10 users that will can connect to this server um the problem becomes with this problem with the solution the problem is that once you scale past a certain number of users so let's say you want to add another user an 11th user you have to go into this server and update this list manually and add another key um if you want to remove a user you have to do the same thing you have to go in and remove that key um if a key is leaked you have to go in and manually remove it and if there's multiple servers let's say there's 10 servers this effort gets even harder so uh, pki is kind of a way to say okay instead of listing every single key that is valid and isn't valid um it just trust this identity and this identity will tell you whether a key is valid or not um so it kind of simplifies it in that sense and it also allows you to create more complicated access rules for example like if your key if the client key has a certain um role for example like uh i am um, like a certain type of user then perhaps it will automatically be allowed to access a certain class of servers without having to manually add okay it can access this server and this server and this server you can just say it can access all database servers for example um based on like the person's role if it's only a small number of people a small number of servers um it might be too complicated of a solution um but as as you scale it becomes much easier i would say so i that's an interesting point you made there's a, a number of things that you mentioned there you talked about that blast radius talking about the granularity of that trust of of an identity in in essence when we say workload identity where each of the actual service in itself has its own identity therefore having its own set of um authorization roles like as you mentioned roles right um Uh, and there there it lies the the other part of the problem the operational scale of such um number of identities from what i understand about monzo there's like you know over a thousand different uh, microservices and with this article the understanding would be that each of those microservices would have its own identity how is what is that scale is there a uh, uh, the first question rather is there a uh, a concern around the scaling of those number of identities how do you manage the operational um uh, access of each of the so the the authorization at, uh, p- part of those um identities at scale and also as was a follow on question would be that given that you've now established this kind of identity at that workload uh, level how has that kind of um made any changes to your say overall platform architecture where they were other say i don't know network segmentation uh, would that would that be considered now actually this is redundant because we've managed to identify uh, and therefore you know 
an entire class of subnet, for example, it, it being one big massive identity, given that the approach that we're taking is we want to make it more granular. Therefore, now actually these access, as you mentioned, the access level uh, being at that level, therefore those other controls are redundant, maybe. Or, or how? What's the approach that uh, I suppose I, I'd be intrigued to understand what's the approach you guys have taken on that. Um, so in terms of how the platform has been like um, affected in depth by adopting a PKI, I I can't really say for sure. I haven't been around for that long, unfortunately. Um, in terms of like network isolation, for example, you, I, I wouldn't say that it, we want to make identities more granular. Um, uh, but for example, into when you mention network isolation in terms of PKI, I immediately think of uh, mutual TLS, um, where you're able to use a service identity and implement network isolation through uh, saying that, okay, well, service A is only able to talk to service B and C and D. Um, and you can enforce this by adding restrictions or information inside either the certificates themselves or in kind of the control plane where it will kind of have this information in the background that so about which services can talk to which services um uh sorry i forgot i forgot the first part of your question so, yeah no it's fine i, I love the answer i love the answer anyways I, I, to you, don't worry about it anymore i think that's if, if anything that's answered the, the first and second question well, the first question was actually more around the scale of all those different identities and and the, and the different okay, access okay. Uh, that was required. How how do you map that, and how are you categorizing those? Uh, um, I think like in AWS, for example, you have identity AWS IAM, then you have the AWS IAM roles, right? You could just say, well, AWS uh, account ID only has access to uh, uh, have uh, uh, RDS and EKS, baby. It, it, it's it, there's a, a sense of management there that you can have in managing roles to say there's a certain category of identities that have certain access. That was my first question. In terms of the second question, I love it. By the way, I, you've answered it. Like as in like that whole firewall and network is all becomes redundant because in essence, what you're saying is that that network management is in that TLS area. So yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that it becomes redundant. We d like to operate a kind of defense in depth approach. So it would, kind of adding another security control wouldn't mean we'd remove an existing security control, for example, unless the, I mean, it would depend situation to situation, but um, you want to kind of think about the entire um, threat model. Um, in terms of scaling, so it kind of depends because if you imagine a very short-lived certificate, like a leaf certificate that might expire every few days and might need to be renewed like every day, for example, um, you could imagine that this could cause a lot of load on uh, uh, the service signing these certificates, creating them. In this case, that would be Vault. Um, it's kind of just a... An, an engineering problem um, uh, at the end of the day it's about just making sure that we have enough redundancy and uh, that the platform is just able to handle c c like uh, kind of catastrophic conditions where there might be a lot of requests at the same time for example if every service went down and 
immediately had to come back up and get a certificate that would cause a lot of load. Um, it's kind of just about making sure that we are redundant enough and we can handle situations like this. Um, but there's no kind of uh, cryptographic defense to such a scenario. I think that's that's a very important point. And it's something that when, when we discuss security, a lot of people overlook the availability aspect of it. It is one of the core pillars. Uh, the thing that I know that Adil wants to delve into, you, you said his magic word. You said defense in depth, right? <laughs> Adil has some opinions on defense in depth. I'm going to let him explain it, right? But essentially, <laughs> the line of questioning he's probably going to go down is something along the lines of, if you've established identity with PKI, so you know what service A is, right? You know what service B is, and you have this mutual TLS and a definition of what services can speak to each other, then exactly what role does network, uh, the, the networking uh, layer actually play in this, right? So why do you need to put that isolation down at that layer as well when you already have this? Is it not redundant? That's the question he's going to ask. But before I let you answer that, I want Adil to come on and add more color to that because I know as soon as you said it, I knew he was smiling. <laughs> I want Adil to add to this. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I said this before. Uh, um, the my uh, view of defense in depth, uh, it, or I like to challenge the notion of defense in depth that our IT industry or technology industry are, are using, where they say that adding multiple layers, um, given that. Even from a networking perspective, when you're allowing a certain subnet to access uh, or route to another subnet, it's in essence that is an identity that you are trying to validate and allow access to. But if we had just said that actually the identity that has been through a, tr a trusted delegate, delegated trust here, have been attested for and validated, why are we adding further? Um, controls so to speak around that uh validation for identity um especially yeah so as i say about the whole defense in depth and, uh, and layers and, and the wider ecosystem as you mentioned right so in i suppose let's put it simply sorry i was going to say was like let's put just, the simple question here probably would be what's the risk what's the impact and the risk if you uh had your network opened up given that your identity, as you are saying, you have the assurance that it cannot be spoofed. You have the assurance that actually they are who they say they are. Then what's the problem? Um, I can only give like my opinion here, but um, I guess my perspective is that in this situation, um, the authentication from a cryptographic standpoint is a layer seven, uh, is implemented at layer seven and network isolation is usually like layer four. Um, so they kind of operate on a completely different levels, you know, like if you're talking about like RPC streams or like, uh, like API calls, HTTPS calls or something between services at the application layer, then you have kind of a strong guarantee that depends on the secrecy of, uh, the secrets that underpin the PKI. Um, but when you have a layer 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 four defense for example it's kind of like okay well this entire vpc can only be accessed from within the vpc or um these services can only be talked to through uh 
through uh, these load balances or yeah but let's i'm going to go back to your article actually so you mentioned you mentioned about linux kernel 5.14 introducing this whole mmft secret right which essentially allows you to protect the workload within the os in itself i said you're not trusting even the, that os right so and you even mentioned it like even if someone were to have full control over a computer it will be difficult to access that sensitive information so so MMFD, that reinforces my question. MMFD secret is a, yeah, I mean, is a is a cool feature, um, but I don't think it's widely uh, widely available. No, no, no. Hear me out. Yeah, yeah. Hear me out. So let, let's say, in theory, let's just say you've got that right. You've got that widely implemented in your in your uh, uh, organization, and you just have talked about it's so different layers of of control. So layer four, layer three, right? My question would be: So what if someone has uh, access to your v, uh, to your computer? So what if someone's managed to get SSH access to it? So what if layer four has been compromised? Are we talking about, okay, layer four is compromised. I've taken your computer down. That goes back to your previous example about, well, we need to ensure that the availability is there anyways, right? So if the availability is there and someone has come taken your, your, your VMs down or like, you know, your VPC is open, I, I, it comes down to, right, so? Like, you know, your VPC is open. Someone can access your v, VM. But you're confident that they can't access your data. I guess at the end of the day, it's also about like, um, is this a very big trade-off to have the layer three control as well or the layer four control? Like if I, given um, uh, that, like obviously in such a regulated space like finance, you have to... um, you have to have like very, very high levels of assurance about things. uh, it's a, it's kind of about okay. For example, let's say we have an attacker um, who has access to a box inside the VPC and can do whatever they want. They can send arbitrary packets to any service that they like. A layer f- a layer seven defense isn't going to stop that. Um, whereas a layer four how, how, defense might mitigate that. Well, but why wouldn't a layer seven as to any other service? You'd be like a DDoS attack. Is that what you're saying? Um. Well, okay, well, if you mentioned DDoS... They won't be able to authenticate to another service, right? Well, if you, like, it, you just said... If they- a DDoS attack, for example, um, a layer 7, a layer 7 prevention like MTLS, the only thing it would prevent is opening an MTLS connection with a, with an endpoint that expects MTLS. That's the only thing it defends so if I put a d- So if I, if, if I did a whole DDoS against, to, uh, say, a, a, an API gateway or, or a load balancer, essentially taking down that load balancer or the API gateway... Your service is down anyway, um, is it not? Well, that's where redundancy comes into play. Um, there you go, right. So at which point then we say that if the if the DDoS was done at layer 7 within the network, you have your redundancy as well. The point I'm trying to make is that if you're worried about the availability, which you're saying, actually, I have assurance of my availability, so DDoS is not really an issue in that sense. That other than, obviously, yeah, it's nice to not even have DDoS in the first place, but... The question here, rather, is that coming, let's talk about back to that service piece. You said, so someone has access to your VM, SSH, right? Has managed the SSH from there. And from there, we're talking about lateral movement, right? But if we're saying, actually, we don't trust anything, zero trust, i.e. everything is authenticated and authorized. So from that VM, in order to access another layer seven, it must be able to uh, um, do that whole identity attestation. And it won't because... Only that has is just access to a VM. It doesn't 
inherently, just because he has access to a VM doesn't mean that it it, it will have uh, be able to do a workload identity attestation, right? So if it's unable to do anything, my question here is, right, that there's other risks that are introduced when you talked about attack vector. So having that, say, perimeter, as we say, whether it's through load balances or through um, those API gateways, again, I obviously I mentioned it earlier, when you do that whole DDoS and you have taken it down, that in itself is another attack vector. Are we not opening those those risks, uh, um, which seem nowadays maybe more profound and more uh, impacting, given that actually at the application layer, I've already secured it and the impact is quite low because the availability is there. But if I if I make an issue at the uh, if I uh, sorry the vulnerabilities at the perimeter, everything that's within that perimeter is essentially unavailable. Uh, sorry, are you saying that having um, both the layer seven and layer four controls is somehow uh, more risky? Redundant. Than, it's redundant. Redundancy. Yeah. Yeah, it, and well, you're saying re- redundancy a, a, a is redundant. redundancy is a bad thing. No, I've seen redundant in the sense that it's an extra layer that's not needed, and yes, it is. It would pose to be a more more of a risk. Correct. Yeah. How would it that be more of a intru- risk? Because you've introduced something that can be attacked, right? Um, by introducing your load balancer. So it's like if, if the redundancy... Email client. So if, for example, I, th- I guess one example of this when is... I, when I say redundancy, when I say redundancy, I mean as in like it's not needed. Yeah. Um, so I guess one example uh, I can think of or kind of an analogy is in uh, post-quantum cryptography, we have like hybrid crypto systems where we use both uh, post-quantum and conventional cryptographic algorithms in such a way that their security is additive right um normal security controls as well when you design them they don't especially when on they're on different layers like this they don't tend to interact with each other so uh it's when security is additive like this a compromise of one of them uh wouldn't be inherently more risky than just having one of them in the first place um, so I'm, how, how, can you give an example as to how attacking yeah. one of them would be okay. less secure than just having one of them available in the first place and not having the other? So your applications are out on the internet or let's say so it, 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 your VPC is public versus your VPC being guarded with these API gateways and, and your, let's say, uh, multiple load balances and, and a firewall at the front end and a firewall at the back end. Any of these layers is compromised. When I say compromised, I mean, let's talk about DDoS, at which point inherently that uh, that service that it's protecting is unavailable. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, most of the times these perimeters are not protecting one application. It's protecting 100 applications or because it's a perimeter, right? It's perimeter, it, the whole wall's behind... So now when we're, the blast radius when we're talking is about much larger. Um, when we're talking about like the perimeter of the VPC, um, we yeah. would also have like very strong authentication mechanisms to like uh, for any like ingress traffic, for example, if we have an engineer yeah. that's trying to access uh, some service within um, uh, within the VPC, uh, we'd use something. We'd have very 
so normally the principle that you go by is like something you know and something you have uh, in order mm-hmm. to authenticate. So something you know could be yeah. um, kind of a password. Something you have could, for right. example, be a hardware authentication token. Um, and uh, using this, you can like have an interactive challenge or some type of proof of authenticity uh, yeah. that will kind of like give you a token that will allow you to ingress. Exactly. That's exactly my point. The point I'm trying to make is, right, is that given what you've just said is that essentially it's it's describing the process of validating the identity. My question here is rather is then what's, so why are we introducing a lot of operational complexity? Uh, What, what risk are you trying to, you know, uh, uh, um, apply controls to? If the, if the risk is data exfiltration, well, you've already a- applied that control at the TLS level, no? Um, I, I think we're talking about like many, many different things here. Um, it's hard to like c- kind of... Yeah, no, so I think... What I'm, yeah. Because like well, when, no, I'm, so when I'm, I'm thinking about the platform in general and egress and ingress, there's like many different possible things we can t- be talking about. Human ingress, like ingress from different services, egress from services... Um, or like network traffic within services. But the service to service is protected by the identity that you're mentioning, right? The the, the, the delegated trust. As in the service to service identity uh, um, validation is done through this uh, article that you've described. So if I was to, let, let's, let's break this down, or let, rather let's make this a bit more simpler, is that if the service-to-service, inter-service communication has a strong identity uh, um, attestation process in place, what problem, or rather, why would you still have a network segmentation, or when I say network, I'm thinking about subnets here. Why would you still uh, insist of having subnets? Why would you insist of having uh, even, say, different VPC between a dev environment and a prod environment? One example, one example you could give is suppose a key is compromised. Um, so in that scenario, you wouldn't be able be able to uh, run the key. A, be the identity, yeah. So key be the validation, key, for example. Yeah. If that is compromised, then an attacker wouldn't be able to kind of uh, jump from one environment to another, run an okay. So, so now the testing environment. Correct. So now. So that's interesting, right? So that so now you're saying is actually we don't necessarily actually have good assurance and trust in our workload identity. Um, what do you mean? Well, you said the key got compromised, right? I mean, uh, uh, so the, the thing is, as as uh, as security engineers, when we design, um, when you design a secu- a piece of security infrastructure, you also have to account for. Um, it failing and you have to be prepared and still maintain high levels of assurance and security in those failure scenarios that's why we like give leave certificates very short lifetimes for example because we don't expect them to be leaked but if they do you want to make sure that the blast radius is very small Um, you need to prepare for kind of situations that you don't necessarily expect or want to arise so that's interesting, right? So we, well, we, let's talk about those failure scenarios then. Um, in this case, you mentioned about the, uh, there's still obviously a, a chance of leakage uh, and so you've had that lifetime reduced. 
are there other failure scenarios that where you feel actually the network uh, private VPC is the answer to that failure scenario? Sorry. So you talked about the key key compromise, right? The, co- the key being compromised, but you did you did you just say that that so was it for a couple of what what time frame we're we talking about? We say short lived. Um. So for example, if we're talking about um, a leaf certificate being compromised, um. We these certificates would expire very very quickly within a matter of days, um, and they would have they would only be able to authenticate a specific endpoint or a specific service. They would have a very small blast radius. If I'm if yeah. I'm talking about something else like a a root key, but it, a lot would have to happen for that to be compromised. There's like a very, I'd say realistically, it's impossible to compromise that. There's very well, very the high thing, levels right? of so assurance. The- yeah, but even to say those keys being compromised, because you just mentioned the key being compromised. Surely, if that key was compromised, as in the net from a network perspective, or all these other things, they would allow that key, or that key must be allowed to interact with other endpoints that it's been authorized to do so. Right. So, if that's the case, then then really that key, you, uh, you, when you said the key compromised, then that network hasn't really prevented that key uh, key compromise from uh, uh, lateral movement because you talked about reducing the blast radius. It's still able to reach those other endpoints that's authorized to do so. Uh, well, it, it it really depends. Um, I can't really say very abstractly. What I'm trying to figure out here is, am I missing something here? that seems to uh, maybe be glaringly obvious here. Even when you, when you mentioned about the key compromised and uh, uh, therefore having that network boundary uh, would uh, uh, reduce the attack. But I just realized that actually that key, if it was allowed to traverse another network anyway, then the, the network boundary wouldn't have prevented it to reach those other endpoints. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that is are we adding these controls for availability or, or, or for preventing, I suppose, rather, lack of availability? Or are we adding these controls for data exfiltration? There's many different like potential threat scenarios and security controls have to both not be overly complex and account for like many different things. Um, there you go. So we don't want to be overly complex with security controls, right? Again. Yeah. So basically, you're the perfect guest, right? Because Adil said this maybe on episode one or two or something <laughs> like this, right? And we've never had the chance to speak to a security engineer and present kind of this point of view and basically tell us why are we wrong, right? What is it about this approach that is wrong, right? Which is why it's why we're excited to have you on the show. And I guess a good way of... If if I guess if you want to understand where Adil is coming from, right? I'm, I'm going to hand it back to Adil because I want him to explain something, right? But Adil talked about the military definition of defense in depth versus the computer science definition of defense in depth and why he actually prefers the military definition in terms of how we apply it to our computer or our data security, right? Um, and I think once you have that context of understanding that piece and why he sees it that way it, it probably makes it a bit easier to see his point whether you agree with it or you don't actually it's, it's really interesting to hear you challenge it and, and hear you say things like if that key is compromised then they still wouldn't be able to do anything with it because actually at the layer four level 
it's been isolated. So, you know, you've contained the risk there. And I guess the point he's trying to make is, uh, so you don't trust your layer seven controls, because if you did, you wouldn't need layer four, right? I guess that's that's what he's trying to say. Well, I'm going to throw it to a deal just to kind of clarify that. Also, just to, just to throw something in, when kind of when we talk so abstractly as well, it's kind of hard to um, give specifics about things like that, because... Um, w- because when we're talking yeah, about I mean, specific right, platform right. as well, like it's very complicated. There could be like many, many different threat scenarios, many different security controls, and many, many different users and customers and perspectives. Um, it's kind of hard to, I guess, my general so far. Maybe I'm misunderstanding your point, but I don't really see like why, um, like the downside of having multiple additive security controls that operate at different layers. Um, I don't see a compelling argument for removing one of them in favor of trusting the other. I think trust itself is kind of not a binary uh, decision like, oh, yes, we trust this and, oh, yes, we don't trust that. I think we have like gradients of trust in different things and we have to kind of like take into account everything when we're making decisions. That's true. That's true. That's that's a, that's a good point, actually. That's a very good point. You mentioned it uh, and and the combination of that would uh, uh, essentially present the the overall trust. Um, I, I could I could tell you one downside though, right? Um, is for every thing that you have to configure, there's there lies an opportunity to misconfigure it, right? As and as we know, you know, misconfigurations of of AWS IAM policies, for example, is one oh, of the don't get me started on AWS configuration. <laughs> so exactly, right? I hate so, it. <laughs> so when we talk about um, that redundant, no, the, the, the level four uh, controls being redundant is still something you have to configure. It's still an opportunity to misconfigure it. It's still uh, something that, you know, let's just say in that scenario you gave where the key is compromised and you've misconfigured your controls at layer four as well. And you wouldn't know it, right? Because, you know, you, you've, you've, everyone believes they've, they've done the right thing until, you know, the, the incident occurs and, and you realize you haven't, right? Essentially, like you, you haven't built in the kind of the fail safes effectively right it's just it's another area where you can misconfigure whereas if you're not going down that that level of controls right Mm. there's nothing to misconfigure there you know i would say like redundancy kind of helps you out in situations like this though like in misconfiguration well that's the thing right would allow would help you in a different one well that's the thing you think now let's talk about that right you mentioned about say okay misconfiguration just in case let's talk about i don't know s3 buckets or gcs buckets where we we also say actually uh, there are a lot of enterprises that want to say oh actually the um, AWS APIs or the Google APIs they only can be reachable through a private IP addresses that must be only done through the VPC you cannot access this S3 bucket from a public IP address or via the public IP address so even if you did have say the AWS access key it's still impossible for you to uh, access this S3 bucket because you're not coming from a trusted source so now that's I suppose validates your point about if there was a misconfiguration where I don't know ACL policies and all that is now widely open, but now that we have this API that's only private only, oh, we're safe, right? So, are we suggesting that the control to misconfiguration is just have another layer? What? How about actually? How do we prevent that misconfiguration from taking place in the first place? I I think that's its own problem. Um, I guess really? one way. To... Why Why should that be its own problem? Why should why is it not interconnected? 
Really, I mean, why are you adding all these? So you say that you you can't see a compelling argument of removing it. I would argue that I can't see a compelling argument of adding it. And if you're saying that the misconfiguration is that compelling argument of adding layers, then I would say that you've you've added the wrong control. As in that the the, the risk is correct. I can't argue with that risk, right? Misconfiguration is a fact, but is the control of misconfiguration is adding another layer of perimeter? Um, I think coming back to the risk, when we're saying, talking about, um, sorry to interrupt, when we're talking about like misconfigurations in general, there could be many, many different causes of that. And so when we're talking about misconfiguration, like you have to kind of treat it as its own uh, kind of problem that you have to minimize the risk from. Like, for example, if you start using Terraform or something, then it could reduce the 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 chances of misconfiguration happening because all your configuration is like in one place and so people can see that in one place you don't have so yeah, to yeah and now that you know that and now that you know that therefore actually the misconfiguration and say sentinel policy all of that's there i've i've addressed that risk i've i've added the controls now that i know that actually going through a private api is is uh can you ever is, can is you, an, is an extra layer. have you ever said okay i've addressed that risk now i don't have to worry say. about it i've never said that's, that. so that's where defense in depth so let's that's, that's where defense in depth comes in that the, the military perspective of defense in depth. Well, hang, hold on hang on, hang yeah. on before you get into that like let me just say that scenario that we've just talked about is one source of misconfiguration just one source right like yeah misconfigurations can come through any like widespread realm of 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 sources no so, so my question is a lot of people said that right there's an argument that i made with a customer they said to me oh yeah well you're just talking about terraform but what if a, a user who's not using terraform is going through the cli my question would be why why is he going through the cli why is there only why is there multiple ways of accessing uh, uh, or even having privileged access to, uh, to console if you have controls around misconfiguration and it seems to be a single way then why are you not forcing every actions to go through that single way of that single gateway to do to do configuration first of all i think i mean another way you, you talked about another perhaps on. example of uh, where something like this comes up is uh, the difference between detective and preventative controls um nice. so thank you thank you for bringing it up so for example when we have a, a certain kind of um, attack surface you can prevent it by either taking away permissions for people to do things but then at the same time you would also add alerts for what if that thing happens anyway um it's you're operating kind of at different layers but you want to have both in case one of the layers fails um uh, this is the thing i don't see it that way you talk about layers now talk about preventative versus detective right so a preventative control I don't see it as taking away. Preventative controls rather is about the whole principle of least privileged access mm. and essentially doing whatever you need to do to ensure that those misconfigurations cannot happen, right? Uh, um, and if you need those privileged access, then the whole just-in-time, all of that takes a play and it plays a part. Now, the detective controls, I'm not, I'm not dismissing that the detective controls are not needed. And this is where the military term of defensive death comes in, where every layer is not a layer of adding preventative controls or rather adding uh, 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 the uh, um, perimeter, right? Every layer is, should, shouldn't be a form of perimeter. Rather, every layer is a form of monitoring. That whole detective engineering piece is opening that up and so that you are aware of your attack self. You are aware of what kind of uh, uh, issues that will arise. And coming back to that whole misconfiguration piece, in essence, if I was to summarize, 
detective controls would be an input feed or feedback loop back to the preventative controls where you do find an issue has arisen you will then go back to your preventative controls to improve that further on until such point comes where actually your detective engineering so you do need to amplify that now obviously to the point where you have reliable results to show that those in, in essence you need to let it happen how do you have the how do you know what the issues are if you just blocked if it, you don't know what the issues are so you just block everything i don't know what's coming in until you don't see what's ha- coming in you cannot add those preventative controls um again i, I know i'm, I'm, I think, I'm talking I think, abstract sorry I th- uh, yeah i was just gonna say it's like very abstract it's kind of hard to <laughs> yeah yeah come back to the, let's come back to the bucket piece the s3 bucket right somehow how how does one actually open up an S3 bucket to the public in the first place? So forget about the private IP APIs or must be, you know, must have a private IP address and APIs. The problem here isn't the fact that uh, um, we've got uh, uh, APIs now um, uh, covered by a, um, a layer of uh, private access. The issue here is the fact that someone able to, was able to open up that bucket in the first place. Um, I guess the preventative controls in this case, you could have like specific policies on a bucket that only allow um, certain roles or users to access it. Or right. You can only allow reads okay. or you can only allow writes, for example, it's append only. I don't know. There's a bunch of different things. And then you could have prevented, I mean, detective controls that are, um, okay, uh, given all of the S3 buckets that we do have, um, are any of them open to the public? Um, like why if one is just becomes open to the public or if someone launches uh, a different example if someone just launches a random server and gives it a public ip that's something that you don't really expect to happen you don't really like in usual situations that wouldn't really happen um and so you would alert someone based on things like that like uh in situations where things that you Sometimes you need that, like for example, in some particular situation, you would need a server with a public IP. You can still allow that to happen, so you wouldn't completely prevent everyone from doing that. Maybe you can restrict permissions for people to do that. Um, but then you would also have the detective control to make sure that it doesn't happen silently. Um, and I think it, with every with every situation, like when you're talking about S3 buckets or you're talking about an EC2 server, you're talking about something else like network isolation or literally anything else, like the balance between detective controls and preventive controls is different and what is the right choice is different because when you have detective controls as well, you increase toil for people. Like someone has to go and check out an alert. Someone has to um, verify that something wrong is not happening. You can't I don't really see the compelling argument for just saying, okay, well, let's just either get rid of all of our preventative controls and just allow, uh, allow just to trigger many, many alerts every day. No, and no, so no, we no, can no, go no, ahead no. and fix but this. You, no, yes. Well, I do argue, I argue, actually, I would argue for that, first of all, but, uh, uh, you know, in extreme, in extreme circumstances. But let's come back to this bucket thing again, right? You just said that you would add, say, organizational policies that will prevent someone from opening that bucket to the open wide public. You you could. It, it really depends. That's, you could. It really yeah, depends sorry, yeah. on the you situation. You could, right? Let's, let's take this scenario. You can. So in that scenario, I have, do you think, and in your opinion, would you still make the S3 API private? 
um, what the entire S3. Yeah, the entire S3 API. Given that you have assurance around the org policies that no one can make it public. So why do I still want insisting on having, say, the S3 API, uh, the entire S3 API, uh, to be called or, or can only be allowed to be called from a, inside the VPC? I get, I, 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 I get what you're saying. But what I'll say is this is, why not restrict it? That's, that's, I that's think the also with why, also why, with why S3, not? it's not also with S3, it's not the like binary either public or not. Like it could be something that where you only want uh, for actions. a certain yeah certain actions, or you only want a certain like class of things to be able to access it, or a certain role, or yeah, yeah. But that certain class doesn't have to be as in like yeah. Come back to that, right? I am controls for S3 bucket. You would just give the on ID and allow access to the uh, to an S3 bucket, right? So then, why would you, if if you have given the RNID, then why would security but still then, insist? I, I'm not having... sure. Yeah, I mean, you probably have used S3 before, so you know, and you AWS console before, so you know how like overly complicated it can be. Like, would you really be comfortable? Um, just like assuming that you've got all your configurations correct and that. Well, I'm not assuming. There's no way you have to get the controls. Rather. I would I would ask ask the same question to you. You're assuming these there's risks there, right? The perceived risk. Now, the, uh, the, well, if you haven't that, if you haven't been able to thoroughly assert the non-existence of risks, then you kind of have to take them into account. Um, you can take it into account, okay? But risk of what? As in, so but, but let's talk about this. Is the thing a risk of what? Risk of someone accessing your network? Is that a risk? Do you consider that to be a risk? Um, well, I think we're hopping between like talking very abstractly and talking very specifically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, come back to the okay. Let's come back to the point of the bucket again. Then S three. Let's use that as the, as that example, right? An S three bucket. You've your as you, as you suggested, using IAM roles, using a, a proper identity, the RN ID being say a proper identity that's trusted. Uh, AWS. We trusting the AWS uh, identity system. Um. And that on ID only has access to certain uh, uh, access controls to that bucket. And you're aware of that whole, you know, um, AP, sorry, uh, the S3 API uh, by default would uh, resolve to a public IP address. Uh, and the security will still insist on being a private IP address and can only be accessible, say, from within the VPC. Yeah? Yeah. So... What I'm trying to so my question here is that what risk is that uh, private you know uh, the uh, the uh, insisting on the private uh, the source has to be coming from a private VPC? What risk is that controlling if it's not control if it's not about data exfiltration or if it's not about the uh, privileged access? Given that's actually been controlled by IAM, I, am I making sense? Um, I think I think in general, what I would just say about this is I I think it's kind of like a bike shedding a little bit because it's kind of saying that I don't really see the downside of doing this. Um, if you can just make the uh, buckets private and you, I mean I don't know. It really depends on the different situation as well. We can have like. We can have like many many different buckets, and each ones can have different policies and things. You can. I don't know. I... Yeah, now let me let me give you a downside, right? So 
So a, a downside here. So you're saying it's like, okay, well, I don't see a risk as it's controlling, but why not? Why not? Is what you're saying is why not? Right. But it's like, well, it's just extra work. Uh, first of all, secondly, the, one of the downsides will be then like Vault, for example, Vault Secrets Engine, AWS uh, Secrets Engine. It calls the API, um, uh, the AWS API to be able to do that, right? But the moment you've changed that API to be a private IP address and even insisting actually that, that the DNS uh, address to be different, you've, bro you've broken Vault. You've broken that Vault Secrets Engine because of it. Now, in that scenario, are you going to HashiCorp and say, oh, I need you to add a feature request and actually support that for, because that's how I want to do it? Or are you going to say, actually, that's the toil I'm, I'm referring to. That's I don't, I don't understand. To, yeah. How would this break a vault? Well, because vault will be trying to, by default, uh, reach out to an API that's actually uh, a public IP address. The API call for S3 not the private IP address. I, I'm not sure as, I understand this spe specific use case. Okay, so that's why probably we a wrong would, scenario. Why then. we would implement okay. this. I think Rob, you, Rob, you, you got something to say? Yeah, I think you're talking about, it's kind of like, um, how do I put this? Network communication, the different layers, like public, public, public availability versus private availability. How's Vault going to be able to reach this endpoint to be able to um, broker identity? That on, on behalf, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so what I'm trying to say was because the, the question here is like, why not, right? As in like, what's the harm in adding these extra controls is, is, is the question. I here, think right? that's quite a so, convoluted example though. I don't know. Like, obviously okay. we're talking very abstractly and then when we try and come up with the situation, it's quite like, I don't know. I think with all things, it really depends. It uh, That's, a, I think, the most clear answer I can give to this, this discussion. Mm. That it really just depends. Right. Well, we've we've okay. kind of reached our, our time limit. Before we go, right? Uh, I know. You know, Adil got really excited there. We, we didn't even get to get into some of the things that you said. So you talked about being in a heavily regulated industry. I had a series of questions around that because I think from our perspective, we'd love to understand what the regulators expect and kind of how up to date. Oh, that's quite... I think that's really complicated. I'm not sure I have... Uh a lot of context on exactly what regulators want to know, but I think it's public information. Yeah, I think we, we've actually looked up some of the public information, but I think when you look at that, there are so many different ways to interpret it, right? Um, that's a whole episode in itself. So, <laughs> you know, we're not going to get into that, but that was one of the things I did want to ask. Um, but before we go, I just want to talk about quickly, you, you've you got a, a really cool open source project called MemGuard. Um, yeah. You know, I... I, I Sorry, as soon as I found out about you, I kind of researched you and I found that you had this this open source project on GitHub. I looked at what it does and it's it's a really, really interesting project. So I guess just in a in a couple of minutes, can you kind of explain what MemGuard is and kind of what um you know what made you um build this thing? Like what what was the challenge that you were trying to solve and and you know uh, has it solved your challenge? So originally MemGuard was just like a sub-module of a different project I was working on. Um to do with like encrypting things in a deniable manner. So given some ciphertext, you can't assert that there is any ciphertext there. That's kind of the concept of deniability. And while making this, I was wondering, well, what if someone goes into your memory and can take the key from there? What if the key is accidentally written to disk? What, like, what are the good practices around storing key material in memory? And it was something that I really didn't know anything about. This was about 
many years ago, like five five years ago or something now. It was a long time ago. Um, and so I threw something together. I was like, well, this kind of looks right. And I ended up working on it for the next like, f- like three or four years. Um, uh, so it kind of like is that one side project that kind of uh, went out of control a little bit. But um, I learned a lot from it. It kind of, what it does is it, uh, it tries to make sure that when you have key material in memory, it's stored in a region of memory that the Go garbage collector doesn't have access to and so won't go into and copy things about. And also it uses that to then implement an in-memory encrypted data store. So kind of the, one of the problems I realized with uh, storing key material in this way is that it has a high overhead. And so if we just store keys there and I want to store like gigabytes of data later, I can just encrypt those gigabytes of data and do whatever I want with that ciphertext instead of trying to store it all in a protected manner in memory. So it kind of like had, it's like a lot of abstractions over over time, but I think the core problem was kind of how to keep things safe in memory in the first place. And while I was working on this as well, I did come across Vault, like this was a long time ago, so I wasn't really like uh, that familiar with Vault or what it does, but I think Vault and MemGuard kind of tackle different areas of this problem. So Vault is mostly about, okay, well, we will store secrets for you, etc., and we will keep them protected, but we um, mainly focus on who can access this secret, like how can we make sure that only the right people access it. How can we know when someone accesses it and how can we audit this process and um, have assurances about this? MemGuard is different. All it all it cares about is I'm keeping this thing in memory for a short amount of time. I, I want to make sure that it's not written to disk. If someone gets my computer right now, like I shut my computer down, someone gets access to my computer, they won't be able to do a cold boot attack where they like spray my ram with like really cold air and try to extract like remnant data from it or things like this like it's a different threat model but um definitely and you know what i was gonna say was that rob we should definitely uh highlight this to our vault product team because uh, i think this as uh Owen said right it, it does it's a different uh attack vector or it's a different problem but really vault this i see it as this complementing vault even just the vault server itself right because obviously the whole uh vaults master key this is their memory right i was just going to say that as well it's just like okay so i understand they're kind of solving different areas of the attack vector but vault itself has its own attack vector as well um so just to yeah, kind of I be think clear vault, um vault the way vault mainly protects things is using a shamir secret share so it does yeah it, it splits does. things into different pieces um I think the space since the past like five or six years ago has become more, uh, it has developed a lot, I think. Uh, so there's a couple of different projects. Um, you've probably heard of WireGuard, right? Yeah. Um, so I think the creator of WireGuard, Jason uh, Don Dondovan, I might be massacre, he's massacring his name. Um, but he posted this or he's been asking for like the go language itself to kind of like help out with this problem because the way that memguard does it is using unsafe code so we go directly to the kernel and get memory off them 
Uh, instead, it'd be nice if the Go language itself was able to give you high levels of assurance about uh, the copies that are being made about certain memory regions. Um, also, integrating this with like MemFD secret in the future, that would be really nice. Uh, but I think there's different approaches to this and they've developed over the past few years. But I definitely think like if Vault also managed uh, like or cared more about the uh, safety of key material in memory, that would be great because by default... Couldn't agree more. By default, the Go runtime does a lot of copying. Um, mm. any, kind of, any kind of secret that is stored in the Go stack, or I mean the Go heap, is constantly copied. Like whenever there's any compacting process, the GC will obviously copy that region of memory and move it down. When that memory is returned to the operating system, the Go runtime isn't going to wipe it first before sending it if you allocate something in a different in a different language or in a different process you might be handed that same memory that could be could contain key material inside it like uh, it's possible and okay someone can go into your server and take out the ram itself and <laughs> try and perform an attack on that as well uh, there's kind of lots of different attacks that you could try and like uh, account for yeah, definitely, definitely. So Mengard, what I'll do is I'll leave a link to the project in the show notes. Um, I think, like I say, fantastic projects. I think uh, at, at the very least, there's a lot that people can at least learn from the project, even if they don't want to kind of implement it in its current uh, uh, form. I definitely think there's a lot of lessons in there at the very, very least, right? Um, and that that this, this is what's great about some of these open source projects is, and it's like one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of challenge our 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 assumptions, challenge our notions, challenge our current beliefs, you know, and try and drive and innovate our industry uh, in a forward direction. And I think projects like Mengard definitely, definitely do that. Um, so, you know, I just want to give you your flowers. Well done. Um, really proud of the work that you've done there. And I just want to say thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I know it got a little hot in the kitchen with our chef Adil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. You know what it is? I, I, what it is is that I'm just... I'm passionate, but at the same time, when I do get passionate, it's, I just it gets hard for me to articulate things. You know? <laughs> but uh, uh, now, honestly, I love it. Uh, uh, love this whole session as well. Uh, and I'd love to, to be honest. I asked. I remember Rob and I talked about this in a couple of episodes ago. It's like, please, someone come on, come on, come on air and and challenge our thinking. We don't want to be an echo chamber. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, uh, but let, let's have that discussion and see where those gaps are um so yeah definitely final final question right because you just said maybe i'm wrong so i'm gonna put this to both of you right adil i'll start with you has your opinion somewhat changed evolved or completely flipped on it's evolved it's evolved okay so i'll say the opinion that and i'll tell you where um i think Owen made a good point is that the there are other vectors that we need to consider uh and um they're not binary these yeah it's not binary right and that that gradient piece as well yeah. right the, the, the gradient trust uh and and it's the combination of that that would then essentially uh will uh define the uh the, that trust piece so those are two things for me is that different vectors piece um and we're taking those into consideration that there's the, the multitudes of different vectors um what i'd like to explore from from today onwards is more about okay let's try and ramp up the detective engineering to understand those different vectors 
Okay, I'll put the same question to you, Orn. Like, obviously, you, you have a certain way of viewing things. You've heard Adil's arguments from his point of view. Would you say that your opinion or your approach to these things has changed anyway? Or, you know, d would you consider a different approach? Like, what, what has anything changed, I guess? Um, I think uh, my perspective is mostly the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think we were kind of like talking quite abstractly, so it's hard to kind of apply it to any specific circumstance. Um, but I think in general, like my approach towards like defense in depth is mostly the same. And in terms of when we talk about specific things, it, we really need to consider a lot more different specifics about the problem we're trying to solve before I, I'm able to make a general statement like, oh, well, this security control is a good idea or this one isn't, or um, we should apply a combination here or one is fine like it really depends on a lot more than um principles at that level when you're trying to make a specific decision about a specific thing yeah i agree i mean blanket policies i think is in either or right it's not it's dangerous. whether you're saying you know, as a blanket yeah exactly blanket open or blanket closed right both ways is dangerous yeah, yeah. i think what we'll do uh, at some point is We'll take something like a case that maybe like Beyond Corp or something like that. It's just something where there's a lot of specifics in there that we can kind of take that scenario and then we can all apply our different thinking on there. And that's actually a really good way of challenging each other's approach because now we have we have something that's less general and you know we can kind of delve into the weeds in this specific scenario, in this specific set of uh, uh, instances and use cases. Um, that's probably it's, it's really and a then really talk good about way the to, controls for that specific scenario. Precisely, precisely. Because in that way, we can kind of get into each other's mindset and understand where we're going with this. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of it from us uh, this week. This is the longest episode we've ever done. I feel like it's probably the best episode we've ever done as well. Because I think we we really, I mean, personally, I've learned you know, a lot. I've learned a lot. 100%. I, the thing is, right, until you don't get challenged, right, how, you're not going to learn. I, and it's it's being challenged it's, it's something that like, you know rob you and i we talked about right it's like we want to learn and when we we make these statements so that actually we want to be challenged on those statements and maybe and 100 percent as all of us like no these all have different graders and you have to start going to specifics and it's funny because my role and what i do is essentially more around the advisory and consultancy capacity and one of the things i advise around the whole kind of cloud operating model is Validate assumptions, validate your, uh, uh, for each and every use case. So don't just validate for one and then apply that on everything. Um, take one application, each well, one application at a time in each application through that process and then apply the controls for that application. So um, kind of getting a taste of my own medicine, <laughs> really, in this, in this case. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it was a super interesting episode. Uh, we did end up like talking about... Uh, or the kind of the topics went into uh, an unexpected area, not really something um, that is my specialty, let's just say. Um, but yeah, it was a super interesting episode. I think the time went faster than it, than it felt for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said to you before, this show is totally unscripted, so these things can happen. Um, but yeah. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving us your perspective. Thank you for all your wonderful work you've done in the open source community and the blogs that you've written. I think it's going to help a lot of people in the community. And we hope to bring you back at some point again to maybe tackle more specific areas or maybe just do something together differently, a bit like the, the use case uh, scenario I've given you where we can kind of create some content around that and just figure out 
um, the different approaches. But that has been it from us for this episode. Thank you so much, people, for joining us. Thank you to the wonderful listeners out there, and we will catch you on the next one. Peace. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil. Be sure to join us next time.